Hello and welcome to the Athlete Archives. I'm changing things a little bit for 2024 and I will be incorporating guests into each episode. So to kick things off for season four, we're going to discuss George Twinkletoes Selkirk. Twinkletoes was born in January of 1908, played his entire career for the New York Yankees, spanning the years 1934 to 1942. And amazingly, over a nine-year career, he played in six World Series. He played both left field and right field for the Yankees. Uh, but if he's on this channel, you know there's something unique about his story. And so with all that being said, I want to welcome my first guest, Sean, a friend of mine joining us from Ontario. Welcome, Sean. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm kind of the, the token Canadian among our circle of friends, so... It's only fitting that I get to be the guy to to discuss the uh, the the Canadian prominent Canadian player of his day. Uh, uh, happy to to chat and share what I know about uh, my my fellow Canadian here. So awesome, yeah. And so let's first address this nickname, Twinkle Toes. Yeah. So so apparently he uh, he was prone to getting Charlie horses when he ran like normal people do so at some point in his career a coach told him that he should be running on his toes which would help with the charlie horse issues seems to be a success but uh i guess the price was you get a nickname like twinkle toes in return so <laughs> well you, you should never get to pick your own nickname you know no you shouldn't uh, okay. i'm sure there were worse knowing some of the names that they used in those days that there would have been so he might have gotten off easy although i'm not sure i'd want the nickname, the nickname twinkle toes if i could avoid it Okay, so do you have a nickname? No, I don't. And uh, I'm hoping to keep it that way. <laughs> okay, so uh, tell us why he's why he's notable. What's his well, he, he, he tended to live in the shadows of some rather famous teammates. He's kind of a Forrest Gump of baseball. Uh, anyone who was a big name in those days, he crossed paths with at some point. But uh, he was legitimately a very good hitter. Yep. Uh, he had a short career, but... Uh, on a per game basis, he drove in runs at very close to the same pace as Hank Aaron, mm -hmm. which, uh, you know, anything about baseball, there's very few people who drove in runs like Hank Aaron did. Yeah. I was looking at his stats on baseball reference and he did have a pretty good career. I mean, he was a 290 hitter. He hit over 300, what, more than half of his career, including a season at 328. Yeah. Yeah, 127 OPS. So it wasn't just light contact either. He was really a guy who drove the ball, didn't strike out a ton, drew a lot of walks. Like a, he would have been an analytics darling had he played today. You're right. I didn't even look at the base the the base on balls to strikeouts. I mean that that's completely flipped from how baseball is played today. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, you're right. He always walked, except for his first year. He always walked more than he struck out. He had uh, yeah. 1040 OPS and 37 and somehow didn't make the all-star team that year. That <laughs> well, he, he did have a, a bit of bad luck with injuries through his career. So I suspect that's probably oh, you're why right. he, he missed it that, that particular season. But, uh, yes. but yeah, when he was on the diamond, he was a very effective hitter. Uh, got a late start to his career, spent seven years in the minors before he made his debut in the bigs. And then, as I said, his career came to an end in 1942 when he went off to war. So, there was only a nine-year window, and uh, injuries were fairly prominent in his career, so he didn't have a lot of full seasons on the diamond. But uh, yeah, yeah, but we're we haven't we haven't mentioned 
the biggest the biggest claim to fame oh absolutely yeah, i was kind of stalling that one a little bit but basically <laughs> he gets the 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 impossible task of being the man to replace babe ruth on the yankees so he was called up in 1934 uh yankee outfielder early combs had uh crashed into a concrete outfield wall and was out with a fractured skull. And so he got the call to come up and play. His first game was a doubleheader in Fenway Park, which was billed as Babe Ruth's last visit to Fenway. And so I, I read an article where he was, he said, I, I felt like such a, a bush leaguer standing in the field with my hat off, clapping as Babe was walking off the field. And he said, I looked around and realized everybody else in the field was doing exactly the same thing so wasn't so bothered by it but uh, but yeah that was his first game in the bigs and then 1935 he was tapped on to permanently replace babe ruth which as we both know was impossible to do but not only was he tasked to replace babe ruth but he kept babe ruth number he he wore number three after the babe that's which uh, you talk about putting pressure on somebody there were a couple more players after him that wore number three before the Yankees finally got wise to the idea and uh, retired Babe's number. But yeah, he, he stepped in and told the manager, if I'm going to take his place, I'll take his number too. And, uh, you know, he didn't hit like the Babe, but his rookie season, he hit 312 with 64 RBIs, which was second on the team behind only Lou Gehrig, who basically doubled him. But uh, yeah, he wasn't replacing Lou Gehrig either. No, I don't know if you saw, you probably read his Sabre bio. Uh, yes. That there was an interesting paragraph about how he, when he was initially called up um, in 1927 for the International League, and he went to report, do you know where I'm yes, going? Yes. Uh, you want to take a it? great story. It's sort of, <laughs> sort of thing that could never happen these days, but... Uh... Yeah, he was called up to a, a team that the Cambridge Canners, they were short on catchers, so they, they found him and he said, yeah, no problem, I'll come, I'll play catcher. Uh, problem is when he showed up, he went to the wrong clubhouse and joined the Maryland Crabbers. And they said, well, we don't need a catcher, we need an outfielder. So he borrowed a glove from a teammate and he took the outfield and it wasn't until after the game that he he was accosted by the manager of the, the Canners saying, you played for the wrong team, you dummy. Um, I guess the two teams had a bit of a fight over who had his rights, and he ended up staying with the the Crabbers and uh, played the rest of the season in the outfield. So that's crazy. That would never happen today. No, a fantastic peek into baseball in those days. Yeah, <laughs> fortunate turn of events. Who knows if he would have? Made yeah. It. So yeah, as I said, he he bounced around the the international league for for seven years before he got the call up. He was a very good hitter all the way through. And uh, he, as I said, he got called up when one of the Yankee outfielders fractured his skull. So uh, very shortly afterwards, he was credited for being one of the first people to propose a warning track on the ball diamond. Oh, um, I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. So he, cool. he had suggested to reporters in 1935 that maybe they should put a, a six-foot cinder track near the wall so that players know where the fence is. Huh. Given it was actually uh, quite common where players would just be running full speed in defenses in those days because yep. they were going after the ball and they couldn't see where the fence was and there was no warning track so they just ran and they weren't probably padded either no they were largely concrete walls i i remember listening to an interview with joe dimaggio and he was talking about that too he said 
Uh, I forget which stadium had implemented it first, but he was anxious for Yankee Stadium to get the warning track as well. He said, the walls are at least padded here, which is better than most stadiums, but uh, having a warning track would be a very good thing as well because, uh, yeah, you, you can kind of let up your pace and try and time things a little better. It took a, a bunch of serious injuries to get that done, but it seems so common sense now. Yeah. But yeah, he was he was one of the first players to propose that that be implemented in the majors. So in addition to being a very effective hitter, um, all he ever did on the ball diamond was win. He played nine seasons. He won five World Series, uh, including being part of what's probably the second greatest team to ever take the field, the 1939 Yankees. You know, everybody gives the 1927 Yankees the title, and I think rightly so, but the the highest single-season run differential of all time was the, the 1939 Yankees. They had four players on the team with more than 100 RBIs, Joe DiMaggio, Bill Dickey, Joe Gordon, and Mr. Selkirk. They had three other players all had 80-plus RBIs. <laughs> and the, the the two bottom hitters in their lineup who were kind of interchangeable parts hit 56 and 57 RBI, which is just astonishing top to bottom. And then their their pitching staff, everybody on the team had an ERA plus of over 100, eight pitchers over 117. Wow. Which is just domination on a level that, I mean, they're the second greatest team of all time. And, and he was a key part of that team. Yeah, I saw on eBay, I saw this, I was looking for Selkirk stuff, and there was a handwritten note on eBay. The person who wrote him asked him what his favorite or most impressive teammate was, and he was saying it was impossible to pick. He played with Ruth Gehrig. Um, he said DiMaggio and Berra. I don't know that Yogi Yogi's career overlapped I with him. but don't I believe so. He Selkirk was done in 42, and I think Yogi came up post-war 46 may and 47 have said that because i know that he he coached in the minor league organization for the year. yes he coached uh post-war he coached yogi Berra and whitey ford and mickey mantle when they were in the minors in toledo so um like i said he's very much the forrest gump of at least new york yankees baseball he had it every major name on the list he had some dealings with through the course of his career and i got one other one that uh is Kind of a, a somber story, but uh, when he came up with the Yankees, George was roommates with Lou Gehrig. Oh, wow. and, and and in those days, obviously, hotels didn't have gyms or weight rooms or anything like that. So what the players would often do is they would wrestle as a way of staying in shape. So George had the unenviable task of wrestling Lou Gehrig, and... Uh, he didn't come out on top of very many of those matches because Lou was just built like a horse. He was a beast, but I guess George was a wrestler when he was younger. Oh yeah. George was no slouch. He was a, he was a big, strong man, but uh, he wasn't Lou Gehrig. Uh, but kind of the, the somber note of it all is that one of the first signs of Lou Gehrig's disease was when he and George were wrestling one day and Lou just went entirely limp. And neither one of them knew what happened and couldn't figure it out. And it was only much later that they realized this was this the one of the onsets of, of ALS that was manifesting. So um, mm. kind of, like I said, kind of a sad story, but uh, interesting nonetheless. It's interesting. I'll have to go back and look. I, I did watch the Pride of the Yankees maybe just a year ago. I, I, I have to go back and now that I've now that I know about Selkirk, 
I'll have to go back. Yeah, there. just look for the guy wearing number three. Well, but I but I know in that movie, it's I, I seem to remember like you know the babe babe is in that movie. Uh, I don't know I don't know that they cast the movie with in you know kind of fudged reality and had babe playing with him. To well, I'm, I'm sure they would have. You know, he was the big name, so the more you screen time you give Babe Ruth, the more appealing the movie would be. Yeah. I don't imagine George Selker got a lot of air time. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I didn't know that they were roommates either. That's that's great. One of the things that I that I find interesting about these guys are what do they do when their career is over? And, you know, we hinted at the fact that he managed uh, in the Yankees farm system for a while. Yeah, and he had kind of cups of coffee all over baseball after his career. So he was a, a player personnel director for the Kansas City Athletics in the, the late 50s, uh, 57 through 59. Uh, I don't believe Kansas City had any players of any note in that time frame, but uh, that was the job he did. He, he went over to the Orioles in the early 60s, uh, caught on as a GM of the Washington Senators for, for six years in the, the 60s, from 62 to 68. Um, he was, he was more or less handcuffed by the fact that the team had no money. So it was it would be unfair to judge his record on any merit because he wasn't playing on the level playing field with, with the bigger teams. So uh, when ownership changed in 68, the team was sold. He left. I'm not clear if he resigned or if he was fired. But uh, basically returned to his Yankee roots and stayed with the Yankees as a scout for for basically the rest of his life. And so he's in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. Yeah, he's part of the inaugural class, actually. 1983 is when they decided to establish the Baseball Hall of Fame. Okay. Um, he's one of the first inductees. Uh, Shag Shaughnessy, for anyone who's a collector of T206, he's the uh, the Southern Leaguer with the wild hair. He was one of the inductees. And uh, former Canadian Prime Minister Lester Pearson was another. Okay. But uh, Selkirk was probably the best ball player of anybody inducted during the, the inaugural class. So. Okay, so since you bridged the T206 gap, uh, or you, you mentioned T206, let's let's talk for a minute about the baseball card part, uh, which I feel... Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, as, as we kind of touched on, there wasn't a ton, just because of the timing of his career, you know. He just caught on just after the uh, the 30, or just into the 34 season, so he missed the Gowdy years. Yeah, uh, he does have a, a card in the Diamond Star set, which is considered to be his rookie card. Um, he's got a, a 37 Canadian OPG card, which is just kind of appropriate to have your Canadian citizen represented in the set. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I think that card mentions he's the only Canadian in the big leagues, uh, at least at the time the card was made. There weren't a lot of them playing. Mm-hmm. Um, he made an appearance in the 39 and the 1940 play ball sets, was not in 41. Uh, by that point, his career was pretty much winding down. I think he had played uh, 70 games in 41, so he was becoming a fringe player. Uh, obviously, after 1941, war started. Uh, no cards were issued in 42. Never had an exhibits card, which kind of surprised me because there was the the 39 to 46 window, which he would have fit into, but uh, never had one. Um, so that's kind of the sum total of the cards that are available for, for George Selkirk. Yeah, uh, the play ball cards are probably the most common, right? I would say so, along with the Dino Stars. The, 
but uh, I, I'm particularly fond of the 1940 play ball. The the set was known for having the nicknames on there on the card. So there there was a player named Gunboat and another guy. Uh, what was a line drive? Who <laughs> the misfortune of having a nickname line drive as a pitcher rather than a hitter. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, before we wrap up, I do want to say it, it, it impresses me that, uh, I mean, clearly he identified as as a Canadian and an American, but he was one of the first guys to enlist. Uh, yeah, and you know, he served in the, the U.S. Navy. Um, he would have been welcome, obviously, to join the Canadian Army as well, but he felt that the U.S. was his adopted country and he wanted to to serve in defense of his adopted homeland so yeah he joined the u.s navy was there from 42 um i'm guessing it was the middle of 42 because he did play a bit of that season but i'm not sure exactly what the timeline would be on that one but he went over somewhere after 1942 served in the pacific theater in in the navy and uh came back in 1945 had a brief spring training with the yankees and uh was cut before opening day, and that was that was the end of George uh, Selkirk as a player. He pretty much he sacrificed his career there. Uh, you know, he probably could have could have. He, he might have got a couple more years out of it. It's hard to say. He was injuries had definitely taken their toll by the end, and there wasn't a lot of gas left in the tank the last two years he played. But uh, yeah, but I mean, but you never know. He would have been going up against Joe Nuxall. The, uh, yes, that, that, that's right. Or, yeah, there were any hosts of sixteen-year-olds that were yeah. lobbing seventy-two at you, and uh, that sounds like a pretty good way to prolong your career. I did see that he was a considerably good rifleman and uh, became a uh, an instructor uh, in the rifle range. So, he, which you know doesn't surprise me either, given where he came from, kind of along with being in the barren wilderness. Um, having some rifle skills would have been essential for some of the wildlife you'd encounter because it was bear and wolf country at the time. So, Oh, that part uh, of Ontario? Yeah, and he, he likely would have been a hunter. There's plenty of deer up there as well. So, Okay. Um, yeah, that would have been a skill he would have learned in his youth and uh, awesome. translates well to military service. Well, uh, I appreciate your time, Sean. Yeah, thanks for doing this. This is great. Thank you all for listening. Please consider subscribing so you don't miss next week's episode. I'll be discussing another athlete whose story absolutely deserves to be told. Once again, thank you to Sean. Your knowledge of George Selkirk just blows me away. Couldn't have done this episode without you. Thanks, man. And thank you to you all. Take care.